Hello and welcome to this week's Renwick Centre podcast. My name is Trudy Smith and I'm the Manager of Continuing Professional Education at the RIDBC Renwick Centre. We are in Hearing Awareness Week and we are actually going to be making hearing a focus for this month and predominantly career pathways and opportunities for people who are deaf and hard of hearing. And so we've brought an old friend of the podcast back to have this conversation, Tim Byatt, who's talked to us previously about telepractice and his work around social capital for adolescents and his PhD work. But let's learn more about the man. So, Tim, if you can tell us maybe a little bit about your hearing diagnosis and your early memories. Sure. Hi, Trudy. Thanks for the opportunity. Um, so I was born, I won't give an exact date, but I was born <laughs> roughly uh, circa mid-70s. So back in those times, we didn't have... Um, early detection and newborn hearing screening. So my hearing loss, which is moderate to maybe moderately severe in the middle frequencies, is um, was diagnosed when I was about four. Apparently, I was speaking reasonably well, so I wasn't picked up when I was younger. Um, and since the age of four, so approximately 40 years now, I've worn hearing aids. Right. And so what sort of support were you, did you and your family receive? So obviously, you know, that's quite a light diagnosis by today's standards. Yeah. Um, I think medically we received great service um, from a, a terrific ENT. I had um, middle ear issues as well and I had grommets in and out about 10 times. So I don't know exactly how many, but it was roughly 10. Um, so that was terrific. Um, Hearing Australia, as it was back then, were, were fantastic and, and still remain so. Um, in terms of um, support in primary school, I had more support in primary school than I did in high school. And I guess that was a combination of um, maybe I didn't seek it out so much in high school and I went to an independent school. So it wasn't maybe provided uh, as, as a course compared to in primary school. Sure. Did you have any difficulties with peers at school, Tim? Yeah, I, I did, certainly. Um, I was always fortunate, blessed to have um, two to three close friends throughout primary school and high school. I mean, they, they differed in who they were, but I was never without friends, or not for long anyway. So I was always grateful to have friends. I did experience a little bit of um, teasing and, and that kind of thing. And I, I guess sometimes when we look at the way kids react, like sometimes there's two extremes. You can either become quite aggressive or the other extreme is um, to kind of just withdraw. And I went that other extreme in terms of withdrawing. And um, so, yeah, I, I was not a very confident person, certainly in, in high school when I really came into my, I guess I was a bit of a, a late bloomer in that regard. Sure. So that's sort of at school. What was your experience like then after school? In terms of after school, um, I... I I suppose I entered the workforce. Um, I didn't want to have a bar of university or further study. I, I, I just could not stomach it. And I, I actually went into a career, uh, a traineeship at McDonald's and did that for a year. Absolutely hated it. <laughs> Stuck it out for a year. And I've got nothing against McDonald's or retail, or, but it just wasn't for me. It wasn't my passion. And then I um, went into um, real estate in terms of... Um, studying at university, did that for a couple of years. So you can kind of see that it took me a while to find my feet, find out who I was in terms of my hearing deaf identity, but also just in terms of my wider identity as well. And um, after a few years of finishing high school, I think I was um, about 20, 21, something like that, I started an education degree at Macquarie. 
Sure. And so did you always have sort of teaching in the back of your mind as a possible? I did consider it. Yeah, I I did consider it in high school um, because I didn't really view myself as a really competent learner. I was certainly getting by and I was getting B's and C's, but I didn't really see myself as like really a gifted learner or anything like that and certainly not university material at the time. And um, so, yeah, but, but I always had a passion for um, literacy, reading, um, humanities-based subjects in terms of um, English, history. That was very much my forte, but I more did it for pleasure rather than academically at first. Sure. So how did you become a teacher of the deaf? Well, initially, I was a mainstream teacher. Um, I am a trained high school and English teacher, and I did that for five years in a number of different schools. It got to the point, though, that I can't see myself doing this for the next 30, 40 years. Uh, It's, again, kind of like the McDonald's experience. I'm not knocking it, but it (laughs) wasn't for me personally, uh, long term. Um, Very grateful for that experience, though. And... um, and then I, I think I really found myself coming to Rennick and enrolling in the master's program. And that was um, great professionally, but also personally for me and giving me a lot of confidence and, and um, really getting that passion and, and learning and doing well at something that I was putting the time into. Yeah, sure. So I'm sure that your personal experience must play a part in the way that you work with kids and their families now. Yeah, I think it definitely does. And something I've given a bit of thought to over the years. Um, I think when I first started at Rennick, and this is back in 2007, I'm going back a little bit of time, um, <laughs> but I, I was just fascinated particularly by all the social stuff. I mean, I, I had to learn obviously all the, the speech and language and technology and all, all those kind of really important things that it involves um, being a teacher of a deaf. But what had always taken my interest um, from right from the beginning was the social stuff and the social experience and how um, the kids were able to manage uh, with peers, with their confidence, um, with work and after school. And I guess that was very interesting to me. And perhaps unavoidably, I kind of projected my own experience under that. And you're reading journal articles that, yeah, I can really relate to that. And mm-hmm. I brought that into my own practice, um, perhaps a little too much to begin with. And I think now I'm a bit more measured in terms of, I think it's, it's very valuable having that firsthand experience, but I'm very careful not to project my experience onto the kids and families. For one thing, they're in a different era. The kids I'm working with now uh, are somewhat 30 years younger than me. So they're obviously <laughs> a very different generation. So different experiences. I think uh, there's more understanding and, and acceptance related to hearing and, and hopefully vision as well. Um, but uh, so it's a different point in time, different experiences. So I, I think, yeah, certainly my experience has played into that. But it's just I'm one case study in amongst thousands of people. Sure. Do you, do you think, though, that parents um, put more value on your relationship with their children as an educator because of your background? Look, I, I certainly wouldn't say that they put any more or less value on me personally because I have some lived experience. I think it's um, we all bring – we can't be experts of everything. Uh, we, we bring different strengths to the job. Um, it's, it's one thing that I do bring to the job that perhaps other people do, but – 
I think it's um I, I certainly wouldn't say it's better or worse. It just it's just part of who I am for better or worse and something that I do bring to my experience. And I think it can be encouraging for some parents, particularly in the early stages of the diagnosis, or maybe things aren't going so well in early high school with that transition is often quite tricky and that there is hope. And um, and I'm quite open with people in terms of saying it, it, it took me a long time to come to grips with these issues. And, um, you know, if they're open to that, it yeah. depends on the relationship you have with the parents. Certainly, I can imagine. Has this shaped your PhD research focus, do you think, Tim? Yeah, I think so. Like as I said earlier, I've always had a great interest in, in the social side of things. Um, initially, that was more of a, a social communication focus, but... Um, it was suggested to me by my one of my supervisors, Dr. Jill Duncan, Then I look at social capital and I did some early work on that and it fits very nicely into that social sphere in terms of um, what I really like about social capital and I think um, really where the rubber hits the road for us as teachers of a deaf and other people associated in that area is that it's not just about what the individual's got to do. It's not just them learning how to listen better and doing a bit of catch up with the language. It's also about looking at the structures that they're involved in, where their schools, social networks, um, peers online. And it's all about um, building up those structures to empower them while they're also doing some work on their personal resources, whether that be language or pragmatic social communication, whatever it might be. Yeah. And, and part of what we're going to be doing this month with these web webinars, or these podcasts, sorry, is really thinking about how, you know, students who are sitting in high school at the moment thinking about their futures. Your research is going to be really great at answering this next question. What advice do you have for those teenagers who are dreaming of their future, wondering what's possible? What advice have you got for them? Yeah, look, drawing on my own personal experience, I would just say, don't worry too much if you don't know what you want to do. That goes to any kid. It doesn't matter whether they've got a hearing loss or not. Uh, I think it's un an unrealistic expectation that everyone turns 18 and suddenly knows what they want to do for the next 60 years. And that can change, as we know. So um, it's okay not knowing. Um, in, in terms of I, I would go with your passion and ask yourself why you want to do a particular job. And, um, for example, if it's education, what brings you to that job? What attracts you to it? Um, do you have a realistic understanding of what that means? Um, in terms of self-disclosure, um, when I say self-disclosure, I mean talking to other people about your own personal hearing loss and um, your own listening needs, perhaps assistive technology um, and so on. And advocating for yourself is really what I'm talking about. Um, what do you need to do in that particular job? Um, what is a listening environment of this particular job? So obviously, depending on where you are, education can be quite a noisy environment, but that's not to put people off. It just means that the research has to be done and that you have to actually realistically consider, uh, is this what you want to do? And if it is, how are you going to do that? And, um, and what's the plan then? Somebody who is asking those questions and, and making those requests for support would have to have significant social capital around them, I'd imagine. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And uh, a big part of social capital, I think, is about um, diversity 
and really in terms of we have strong social capital We're talking organizations here not so much individuals but if an organization has strong social capital then they are going to have uh, a good understanding and value people who are different from them and that and i think that's a big part about my journey in terms of understanding that i'm i don't classify myself as capital d def and I really respect and admire those who do, but that's not where I'm up to at this stage in my life. But I don't classify myself as hearing either, and I have to embrace my small d deaf identity at this stage in my life. And I think, so th there is a point of difference there. We, we can't just say I'm exactly the same, I don't need any support, because for most people, my experience is we are gonna miss out on things if we don't advocate for our needs. And we have to, uh, on some level, accept that point of difference and embrace it. And, like and through that weakness, real strength can come. Absolutely. I can't think of a better way to finish up this podcast, Tim. And we're so looking forward to you being able to publish this research. It's such valuable work. And I think it's really going to support our teens and the people around the teens who are wanting to support them as well. Yeah, thanks. It's been great talking about it, Trudy. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks, everybody. And we look forward to you having joining us next week.